What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. So it's no secret that Major League Baseball has seen a significant decline in interest over the last two decades, and they're now trying to draw fans back in by implementing the most extensive rule changes that we've ever seen. So today's podcast is going to break down everything you need to know about the 2023 MLB season. We'll talk about where the business is today, the rule changes that have been implemented. We'll talk about team valuations and player earnings and much more. So let's get right into it. All right, everyone, it's no secret that Major League Baseball has been struggling over the last two decades. Baseball is now considered by many to be America's third most popular sport, behind football, basketball, and even soccer. MLB attendance has been on a steady decline for 15-plus years, resulting in 16 million more fans attending games in 2007 than in 2022. And of course, this is a problem. An entire generation of sports fans suddenly don't care about a sport, that has been synonymous with America for the past 100 plus years. We're talking about America's pastime here. But rather than sit back and watch the destruction continue, like they have been for the previous few years, MLB executives have implemented a variety of changes this year in an attempt to stop the bleeding and jumpstart growth. So we'll talk about today everything that changes, from the way the fans consume the game to how it is played. But first, I want to start with an overview of MLB's business itself. Because despite the decline in interest over the last two decades, Major League Baseball is still one of the world's largest and most profitable sports organizations. For example, MLB brought in a record $10.8 billion in revenue last year. That's second to the NFL, which did $18 billion. But it's ahead of the NBA, which did $10 billion. And if you look at the growth chart over the last few years, it's quite impressive. MLB was doing about $6 billion in revenue in 2010. By 2015, they were doing 8.3. 2019, they were doing 10.3. Last year was a record 10.8 billion. So the business is doing more revenue than it's ever done in the history of the sport. This revenue is primarily driven by new national media deals that they signed with Fox, TBS, ESPN, Apple, and Peacock that kicked in at the start of the 2022 season. Fox is paying $755 million a year. That's the biggest deal. ESPN is second, $550 million a year. TBS, $470 million a year, and then Apple and Peacock are each paying $85 million and $30 million, respectively. That comes out to an annual payment of nearly $2 billion. And when you add up all the years on these contracts, seven years for the big networks, two years for Peacock, we're at $13 billion of TV deals that they have signed. This is huge, obviously. The sport's doing well. TV numbers are up. Revenue is up. Everyone's happy. MLB also saw a 5.6% increase in gross sponsorship revenue last year. That resulted in nearly $1.2 billion in sponsorship revenue, with the most popular categories being beer, insurance, tech, automotive, telecom, apparel, and gambling. Now, that's amazing news, right? Money's up, everything's good. But the bad news is that MLB attendance has declined by an average of 2% every year since 2007. And since gate receipts typically make up nearly 30% of all MLB revenue, declining attendance could spell trouble for MLB owners. That's why they implemented a new set of rules this year. So let's go through. The biggest problem with Major League Baseball over the last few decades, in my opinion, this is my opinion, is that the game has completely moved in the opposite direction of societal trends. Think about it this way. Attention spans are getting shorter. It's the reason why TikTok has more than 1 billion users worldwide and short form highlight style sports accounts like House of Highlights and Overtime have built an audience of more than 100 million people. But baseball has ignored this shift. 
The average nine-inning MLB game last year lasted more than three hours. MLB games haven't been under two hours and 30 minutes since 1985. And most of this time is simply wasted. I'm talking about batters walking around, fixing their shirts, fixing their pants, redoing their batting gloves, etc. You get the point. And if you look at the chart over time, games have just gotten longer and longer and longer and longer. For example, in 1930, the average MLB game, nine innings, took one hour and 57 minutes. So less than two hours in 1930. By 1970, it was two hours and 30 minutes. And now it's three hours and about 10 minutes. So we, we added over an hour and 10 minutes to the game over the last 100 years. Things have gotten longer. There's obviously TV timeouts and everything like that. Bullpen changes, shifts, the hitters, everything, right? So the MLB said, we can't do this anymore. We need to change the game. And they didn't necessarily want to change the game from a substance standpoint. They wanted to increase the pace of play. You don't want people walking around. You don't want the games to take longer than they need to, essentially, is what they were trying to say. So they implemented a pitch clock. A pitch clock was the biggest thing that they ended up implementing this year. The pitchers now have 15 seconds to start pitching the ball when the bases are empty and 20 seconds to start pitching the ball when runners are on base. Hitters have to be looking at the pitcher and in the batter's box with eight seconds remaining on the clock. And both the pitcher and the hitter now only get one timeout per plate appearance. So the easiest way to think about this is a shot clock in basketball. But instead of turning the ball over to the other team, if you don't shoot it in time, the pitcher is awarded a strike against the batter when the batter takes too long. And the batter is awarded a ball from the pitcher when the pitcher takes too long. So you get either a strike or a ball, depending on who's at fault. And... The truth is that this drastically changes the game. It seems kind of small, right? Like how long are these guys really taking? 20 seconds, 15 seconds? That seems reasonable, right? Well, the games went from taking about three hours and 10 minutes or three hours and five minutes to two and a half hours in spring training. There were multiple games on opening day on Thursday that took two hours or less. The Yankees and Giants game wrapped up in two hours and 33 minutes. There was only one pitch clock violation all game. And it was the fastest average MLB game. If you took that and extrapolated it out for the entire season, it would be the fastest average MLB game over the season in 43 years. 43 years. So the game had never been quicker. If you looked at all of the games on opening day combined, it was about 20 minutes shorter. And we also saw a couple other things. So one of the other things that baseball has focused on is the idea that we need more action. Right Over the last few years, it's been no secret that people are optimizing around stats and efficiency. So if you look at basketball, what have we seen there? We've seen the three-point revolution. Daryl Morey, the 76ers GM, he was at the Houston Rockets. He led a lot of this stuff, and we've seen it from other people as well. But the idea being that three-point shots are more valuable, especially than long-range twos. So if we're not going to dunk the ball or make an easier high-percentage layup, we're going to be shooting threes. Hopefully, we can score more points that way. It's kind of a different mathematical way of looking at game analysis and, and, and figuring out how you can score more points. Baseball has done a similar thing when it comes to home runs. So when it comes to home runs, baseball has been focused much more on things like bat speed or exit velocity or launch angle. And players are optimizing this stuff to try to hit more home runs. And the result of that has certainly been more home runs. There were more home runs, I believe, last year than ever in, or two years ago, than ever in baseball history. There was like 6,000 home runs in a single year. Yeah, 6,776 home runs were hit in 2019. The other thing that comes off of that, though, is a lot of strikeouts. And baseball was there was less action occurring. There was less runners on base. There was more strikeouts and it became a bit more boring. So the other thing that they wanted to do was they wanted to, they banned the shift. 
right? So they, they, you can no longer do the shift. They limited pickoffs. They extended the, the size of the base by three inches, and it lowered the path in between bases. So from first to second is four and a half inches shorter now than it was previously. And the reason why they did this was to encourage more base stealing. The stolen base success rate jumped 10% in AAA last year when they tested this out. And on opening day, I think it was 90% of base stealers were successful versus the typical average of about 75. So maybe pitchers get more comfortable over time and they're not worried about the limited pickoffs and they're not worried about the pitch clock and they're able to hold people on better. But 90 to 75%, that difference is huge. That's going to give us way more scoring opportunities. It's going to put more balls in play because of the way that pitchers have to pitch to the batters in those instances. And it's going to make a huge difference. But I think the biggest problem that fans have, we'll talk about diehard fans first. I think the biggest problem that they have right now is with the pitch clock. It's not with the bases. It's not with the shift. It's not with the other stuff. Again, they, they don't want anything to change, but I think their biggest problem is with the pitch clock. And my response to that is that Major League Baseball is not bringing, they don't want to keep the diehard fans there. That's going to happen regardless. If you grew up with your dad and you're watching every single game on your local cable network and you're watching 80 home games a year and you're going to 10 or of them or 15 of them, or maybe even have season tickets and you watch it with your kids, you're not going anywhere with the pitch clock. It's really not even that noticeable of a difference. Let's be honest. But secondly, they're trying to bring new fans into the sport. They want new fans to come in because that's how you're going to create a meaningful inflection point in the business, in MLB specifically. And the way to do that is to eliminate downtime, make the game shorter and less of a commitment for people, especially over a 162-game season. When you look at the other leagues across the United States, all of the leagues that have a tremendous amount of games, like the NBA or the NHL, they have shorter games. They're like two hours or two and a half hours. Football is the only one that takes just as long, if not longer than baseball, but every team only plays 17 games. So it's much less of a commitment. You're not having to watch 162 games a year. That's the main difference. And then there's a bunch of people that actually say they take this approach like they actually care that this is going to hurt revenue for the ballparks and eventually could hurt player salaries and lower salaries because the leagues and the teams aren't making as much money. And the thought process behind that is that Fans will leave games sooner. They won't be at the ballpark as long because games are now 30, potentially even 40 minutes shorter than they were previously. And they won't be buying concessions. They won't be buying merchandise. They won't be spending money at the stadium. And this is wrong. This is wrong, 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 wrong. And the reason why I know it's wrong is because there have been several studies done on this to make sure this did not happen. One, which wasn't really even a study, but it was a study, was the Savannah Bananas. Everyone knows who they are. I've written about them before. I made a YouTube video about them. And what they did was they put a two-hour time limit on games. And they actually implemented that because they realized that everyone was leaving after the seventh inning. No one was staying past two hours anyways. They implemented this time limit. Nothing changed on the revenue side. They actually just got fans to stay longer. And the same study was done by Baseball America across minor leagues with the pitch clock in place over the last couple of years. And they noticed the exact same thing. Concession sales did not suffer due to shorter games. This is a direct quote from them. We did not see concession sales suffer due to shorter games as fans were staying the amount of time as they normally would, but we're now just staying until the end of the game instead of instead of the end of the seventh inning. Again, it made no difference at all when it came to how much money the fans spent, whether it was beers or merchandise or whatever it was, food, etc. They're still spending the money because they're just staying longer in the game. Your total time in the ballpark is not changing. People used to just leave games earlier. Now, those are the big changes. There's a couple other changes like the defensive shift has also been banned and pitchers are now only allowed three pickoff attempts when a runner's on base. And when you combine all of these rules together, baseball is currently undergoing its biggest change in a generation. 
All right, everyone, quick word from the sponsor of this episode, So Rare. This is probably one of the hottest companies in sports right now. It was founded in 2018 by two guys named Nicola Julia and Adrian Monfort. They loved fantasy sports and sports collectibles, so they took the best parts of both industries and combined them to create So Rare. Athletes like Lionel Messi, Kylian Mbappe, Rudy Gobert, and Serena Williams are ambassadors for the company, and they now have more than 2 million registered users in 185 countries. But here's how it works. So Rare lets you buy, sell, and trade digital trading cards of your favorite players. And rather than just looking at them, you can use these trading cards to enter fantasy sports competitions for digital rewards, like more cards, and experiential rewards, like going to an NBA game, meeting players, or winning merch. But here's the best part. It's completely free to get started. And if you go to SoRare.com slash JoePomp to sign up, SoRare is going to give you an additional 20 free cards for your collection. So go to SoRare.com slash JoePomp to sign up, and let's see if you can beat me. All right, let's get back to the episode. Outside of the rule changes that we've seen with pitch clocks and everything else around that, the second biggest thing going on in baseball right now is the demise of regional sports networks. You've probably heard of them referred to as RSNs. The simplest way to explain this is that these are cable channels that pay a lot of money to broadcast local sporting events, and cord cutting has made the business unprofitable. So these are networks that go to the Miami Marlins, they go to the New York Yankees, they go to the St. Louis Cardinals, they go to the San Diego Padres, they do this for basketball, they do this for baseball, they do this for hockey, and they broadcast the games in the market. So the games that aren't on national TV, they're on the local market television. These broadcasters pay a lot of money to the individual teams for the rights to those because the games are popular. But like I said, cord cutting and the rise of streaming has made this business unprofitable. One company, Diamond Sports Group, has already filed for bankruptcy, and another company, Warner Brothers Discovery, says it's going to leave the RSN business entirely. Now, like I just said, this impacts teams across the NBA, MLB, and NHL. NFL isn't really impacted because their TV rights are done on a league level and a national level, but it specifically has an outsized impact on Major League Baseball. So Sportico put out this chart that I included in my newsletter this weekend. And what it says is that local media rights represent MLB's third largest revenue stream. Tickets are 31% of their revenue stream, and national revenue is 26%. But local media rights represent 23% of all Major League Baseball revenue. Sponsorships are 11%, and concessions are 10%. So out of MLB's $10.8 billion in annual revenue, 23% of that comes from local media rights. 23% for MLB. That's compared to 13% for the NBA and 12% for the NHL. So Major League Baseball is almost two times more reliant on local media rights than the NBA and NHL, and they're significantly, significantly more reliant on local media rights than the NFL, considering it's almost non-existent. So the issue with RSNs is, is they're the biggest threat to profitability when it comes to Major League Baseball and its teams over the next few years, right? National media rights are in place. Sponsorships are going to be there. Attendance isn't going to fall off. It may increase. It may go down a little bit, but it's going to stay relatively stable. RSNs are the real wild card because these teams are paying hundreds of millions of dollars to individual teams, and it's how they make a lot of their money. So the ratings are still good, actually. If you look at baseball RSNs, 22 of them were the number one primetime program on cable out of the 29 markets last year. So the majority of them are still being watched in the local markets, but cord cutting has threatened the business model, and it's put millions of dollars in rights fees in jeopardy. Now, Major League Baseball isn't just sitting back and watching this business implode. They've created a new local media department with three RSN veterans in the event that they need to take control of each team's media rights. But of course, this would be much less profitable for teams. 
So it's not very clear what's going to happen long-term here. Literally down to the wire on opening day, some of these RSNs were trying to make payments. They were deciding if they were going to make payments, if they weren't going to make payments. No one knew where they could watch the game and so forth. There's other networks that are launching streaming services like Yes Network, where you'll be able to go on and pay a monthly fee. I think it's about $20. And you can watch all of the Yankees games and so forth. They're getting you know a, a few thousand people to sign up on the first week. You're never going to be able to replace the RSN money by doing that. So this is a huge, 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 huge piece of business for Major League Baseball. But the interesting thing is valuations from a team perspective continue to get higher, right? In the face of business challenges, team valuations have continued to rise over the last decade. But it looks like the RSN issues are finally starting to turn that tide. Let me give you an example. So Sportico puts out their valuations every single year. And they said this year, the average MLB team is now worth $2.36 billion. And all 30 teams are collectively worth more than $70 billion. But here's the interesting part. That's only a 2% increase over the last year compared to an 18% increase for the NFL and a 16% increase for the NBA. And 10 MLB teams actually saw their overall valuation drop year over year. Now, the reason for this is simple. Those 10 teams held an equity stake in the Diamond Sports Group Regional Sports Network which Sportico reduced to zero value. They literally assigned it zero value because of the, the, I mean, the company filed for bankruptcy and they obviously have an uncertain future. So I feel like that's fair. The top five teams from a valuation perspective are the New York Yankees at 7.13 billion, Los Angeles Dodgers at a little bit over 5 billion, Red Sox at 5 billion, Chicago Cubs at 4.7 billion, and the San Francisco Giants at 3.8 billion. The bottom five are the Oakland Athletics at 1.3, Pittsburgh Pirates 1.2, Kansas City Royals, 1.2. Tampa Bay Rays, 1.2. Miami Marlins, just over a billion. So really, we're ranging from anywhere over a billion, just over a billion to 7 billion from a team valuation perspective. And I think the important note here is that while 10 teams lost value and the, the increase was only 2%, the biggest brands in baseball are still performing quite well, actually. The New York Yankees, the Los Angeles Dodgers, and the Boston Red Sox are still three of the top 10 most valuable sports franchises in the United States. So if you took every sports franchise in the United States across the NFL, the MLB, the NBA, the NHL, MLS, et cetera, and put them on one table and rank them most valuable to the least, there would be three MLB teams out of the top 10 representing 30% of the total, the Yankees, the Dodgers, and the Red Sox. The other teams that fill that gap, number one are the Dallas Cowboys, number two are the Golden State Warriors, the Yankees are squared in at three, Four are the Knicks, five are the Lakers, six are the Rams of Los Angeles, seven the Patriots, eight the Giants, nine the Dodgers, 10 the Red Sox. So there's three NBA teams, there's three MLB teams, and then there's four NFL teams. The interesting part here also, though, is that the MLB owners aren't the only ones making more money. The players are too. The top 10 highest paid MLB players will make nearly half a billion dollars combined this year. That includes more than $400 million in salary alone. And the list of top 10 includes multiple players from the Angels, Mets, and Yankees. I'll run through it real quick. Shohei Otani is the highest paid player in Major League Baseball this year. He's expected to earn a record $70 million this year. We'll get to why that's important in a second. Max Scherzer is number two of the New York Mets. He'll earn $60 million between salary and endorsements. Justin Verlander of the Mets is third, $44 million. Aaron Judge of the Yankees, $44 million. Mike Trout of the Angels, Anthony Rendon of the Angels, Garrett Cole of the Yankees, Corey Seager of the Rangers, Carlos Correa of the Twins, Steven Strasburg of the Washington Nationals will make $33 million with $33 million coming from salary. 
that is interesting because he's not playing for the Nationals. Of course, the elephant in the room here is that MLB players make significantly less in endorsements than their sports counterparts. I assume most people know this by now, but if you don't, now you do. Take basketball, for instance. The top 15 highest paid NBA players earn 35% of their total income from endorsements, compared to just 17% for the top 15 highest paid MLB players. So the chart looks like this. Basketball players, the top 15, earn $341 million from endorsements. Soccer players earn $220 million. Football players earn $115 million. And baseball players, the top 15, earn only $66 million from endorsements. And the craziest part, $40 million of that $66 million is from Shohei Otani. He's literally the entire thing, basically. He is the biggest name in baseball. He's the face of baseball. I assume you guys know who he is. He's a Japanese-born player. He's a two-way star. He won an MVP award in 2021. He's made the all-star team as both a pitcher and a hitter. And his success has made him one of the most financially successful MLB players in history, off the field at least. Otani will earn $70 million this year. That includes $30 million in salary and $40 million through endorsements. Now, I want to give you a little bit of context about why $40 million is important. So I, I, I mentioned it there for a second. But his $40 million is $35 million more in endorsement income than any other MLB player. And Otani's $70 million in earnings is an MLB record. So if you look at it against other players too, Otani's $40 million in endorsement money is 2.4 times more the endorsement money than the next nine highest players combined. So if you took the nine highest players on the top 10 highest paid list, they earn a combined $16.95 million. We'll call it $17 million in endorsements. Otani by himself earns 40. Otani's endorsement income is also 5.7 times more than Bryce Harper, who has the second highest amount of endorsement income in Major League Baseball at $7 million. And Otani might just be getting started. He recently became the first MLB player to cross 5 million Instagram followers. He had 2 million Instagram followers when the World Baseball Classic started. He only launched his Instagram last year because Major League Baseball helped him launch it. And the most impressive part is, most of America still doesn't know who he is. So there's this thing called Q-scores, which essentially just measures the awareness of an athlete's name, brand, image, likeness, whatever, in the country. Otani's Q-score is 17%. He has a 17% awareness in the United States right now. That severely lags other big name athlete celebrities like Tiger Woods, who's at 81%, Tom Brady, who's at 77%, and LeBron James, who's at 75%. Heck, Shohei Otani, his Q score is only half of the retired NFL All-Pro J.J. Watt. Really, Otani's recognition is half of that of J.J. Watt to the average American. That is insane. He is the global face of baseball. It is not up for debate anymore. He has a $500 million, maybe even a $600 million Paycheck coming, contract coming his way, and he has plenty of room to grow. This episode is sponsored by Golden. Did you know that a Joe Montana jersey recently sold for over $1 million on Golden Auctions? Golden is the leading and most trusted destination for some of the most significant pieces of sports and pop culture collectibles. And better yet, it's not just for high ticket items. Golden's marketplace is open 24 7, and weekly auctions featuring authenticated and graded collectibles, all just starting at $5. That means collectors of all kinds can enjoy the same quality, convenience, and seamless user experience that Golden is known for at any price point. And here's the best part. Golden is offering no marketplace fees for items sold up to $10,000. So vault and list your items on Golden's marketplace now to enjoy this limited time offer. I'm a big fan of the platform, and I think you will be too. Head over to golden.com to get started. That's Golden. 
G-O-L-D-I-N.com. So it's obvious there's a lot going on in Major League Baseball right now. We've already talked about rule changes, RSNs falling apart, and so forth. But the biggest news in baseball might have come from the minor leagues this week. Major League Baseball recently struck a deal with minor league baseball players to establish the first collective bargaining agreement, that's a CBA, between the two sides. This is the first time in history that minor league and MLB have had a CBA in place. First one ever. They just agreed to it. Now, this includes updated things like drug and domestic violence policies. It gives teams the ability to control players that are 19 years or older. It moves it from six years to seven years now. And it even provides name, image, and likeness, NIL rights, to players that are in the MLBPA system. But most importantly, it significantly increases player compensation and benefits. Major League players will now be paid year-round versus what they were previously getting, which was they weren't paid at all during the offseason or spring training, just during the actual calendar year during the regular season. And not only that, but all of their salaries are, are getting increases. They're more than double, actually. So if you look at it on a per-league level, complex league, the salary is going from $4,800 to $19,800. Low A ball, salary is going from $11,000 to $26,200. High A ball, salary is going from $11,000 to $27,300. Double A, $13,800 to $30,250. And triple A, $17,500 to $35,800. So, Salaries are, are, are getting either at least doubled, in some instances tripled, or even more. They're obviously increasing a lot. It depends on the level that the player is on. But in addition to the increased pay, this new collective bargaining agreement has put an emphasis on housing and transportation. So I know that some of you have probably seen this over the years, but there's been this thing where major league players are essentially trying to get the CBA done on social media. They were posting pay stubs. They were showing their living conditions. They were showing the transportation. They were showing the food. They were showing how they had to get to the games, how they had to prepare for the games, what the quality of the facilities was like, and so forth. And it's created this uproar where everyone said, hey, look, this is a massive business, Major League Baseball. You guys are making $11 billion a year now. Teams are worth like the Yankee $7 billion. The lowest team is worth a billion dollars. You guys have billion-dollar media contracts. You can afford to pay the minor league players a few thousand more dollars a year. You can afford to give them housing. You can afford to give them transportation. You can afford to give them the right food and everything else. So this CBA placed a premium on that. And starting in 2024, AAA and AA players will now receive their own bedrooms. So housing was actually updated last year. They made a, a new rule that, that gave them better options for housing. The teams have to provide them with a facility within a reasonable distance of the ballpark. But now it's guaranteed that all AAA and AA players will receive their own bedroom and players with spouses and children will receive special accommodations. So this is new specifically this year. And this has been a long, 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 long time coming. And I want to be careful here because this is not best case scenario. I think that the pay is still probably too low relative to what they could be getting. I think it's below minimum wage. I know it's below minimum wage in some instances. I think that these people need to be full-time employees. Maybe they can even reduce the number of people that are in the system. It needs an overhaul, right? These teams obviously can't pay them a bunch of money because they're not profitable. All the major league baseball organizations don't own the specific teams. Some of them are independent and so forth. So the system just, it needs an overhaul. Like that's a fact. Everyone around baseball knows it. But the pay needs to increase, the quality of life needs to increase, and all of that goes hand in hand. So you can't just do everything at once. But I caveat all of that with this is a really, 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 really good first step. And it's a really good first step because you had to get a CBA in place. All these other leagues have CBAs where this stuff is negotiable. There's an opportunity for the players to come to the table and say, this is what's important to us. 
This is in some cases what we're willing to give up. This is in some cases what we don't want to give up and so forth, right? This is a business. Part of it is a negotiation and you're able to, to, to give and take on some of these things. So I'm happy to see that the first CBA has been established. It's been a long time coming. There are thousands of minor league players that deserve a lot of credit for putting their neck out on the line, trying to get something done, working on this for years, years, and years. It's finally done. It is not the best thing ever. It's not perfect. Pay could certainly increase. The quality could be better. There are things that will improve over time from a compensation and benefit perspective, but ultimately it's a great step in the right direction. That's it for today. I hope everyone has an amazing weekend. The season has been fun so far. I really hope that you got a lot of enjoyment out of this podcast. The one thing that I ask is please subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, wherever you're listening to it. That helps me see how many people are actually listening to each episode. It helps grow. The bigger we get, the better guests we can get and so forth. And to help do that, share it with your friends. Just tell one person. If all of you guys told one person, we double the audience overnight. That's how it works. I'm not great at math, but I think that makes sense. I hope all of you have a wonderful weekend and we will talk on Monday. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.